Welcome to the Equine Veterinary Education Podcasts. My name is Jared Williams, uh, and uh, welcome to the Equine Veterinary Education Podcast. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by Dr. John Hubble. He's an equine anesthesiologist with a long and highly regarded and respected career and reputation. Today, he will be discussing his hypothesis article in uh, EVE about a novel risk assessment tool for equine anesthesia. Uh, Specifically, it's titled Rethinking Equine Anesthetic Risk. Uh, This is a development of a novel combined horse anesthetic risk identification and optimization tool. As you can tell, that's a lot of words. So he's nicknamed it Chariot, which is a good word and something that people will be able to easily identify and reference. Um, For those of you interested in having the article uh, in front of you as you listen along, you can find it online or in print. Uh, It is in the March uh, 2022 issue. So coming up here, and that is specifically volume 34, issue 3, pages 134 to 140. So if you wanted to look at, go ahead and hit pause and grab it because we'll probably reference a few of the articles. If you're on a walk or something like that and have nothing to reference, we'll make sure that you can follow along just fine either way. Dr. Hubble, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Tell us, how are things? Well, it's uh, almost springtime in Kentucky, so it's uh, we're doing well. Uh, we had a, it's kind of how it is in Kentucky in February. Yesterday it was 19 degrees, and today it's 60. So we're having a great time. Uh, we're getting into the busy season. We had oh four or five horses on the schedule today, which is enough to get us gone, getting us into gear for the springtime, which is our busy season with uh, mares and foals. Uh, that's pretty much where we uh, do, I would say, oh, 65, 70% of our caseload, I think, happens between now and the 1st of July. So it's good. Good to good. see you. Uh, we were uh, we're on one paper together sometime in our history. Uh, one of the old laminitis papers that I remember when your time at Ohio State, and always enjoyed uh, working with you there, and it's good to see you now. Well, I appreciate you saying it uh, absolutely the same way the other way around. I think it's always been uh, my lucky pleasure to work with you, and less so the other way around, but I'll take what I, you know, what I can give. <laughs> um, so you're at Rudin Riddle now after a, a long career at Ohio State. You've uh, done a lot and seen a lot, and and uh, know a lot about the business. Just give us a little history, uh, the, the Dr. Hubble background history on your life. How did you end up where you are today? Well, I was uh, I was born in, uh, in Columbus, Ohio, when my dad was a medical student. He was a physician anesthesiologist, actually. And uh, he was a, a student when I was Uh, born and then he did an internship and then he did a residency in anesthesia and uh, he always had a fascination with horses and uh, particularly standard bred trotters he always wanted to have a trotter and so he bought his first horse I think when I was six Uh, we always had dogs as well but I'm pretty much a horse person and uh, and so I was always involved with the horses. We had brood mares, we had foals, we had things to deal with. And then 
there were always veterinarians uh, taking care of the horses that were in training. And so I uh, had a good relationship with the folks that were uh, training the horses. This is in middle school and high school and, and rode along with them and learned about uh, uh, what challenges faced veterinarians. And then I, I saw what my dad did and he, he was uh, good at it. And he was a, a medical anesthesiologist and spent his, all his time inside, basically, uh, caring for people. And I thought, well, I could uh, be a medical person and be outside. Well, I didn't end up that way, but that's how I started. So I did undergrad school, went to Ohio State. At that time, there were, I think, 17 vet schools. So you pretty much went to your in-state school, and Ohio State obviously had, a, had and still has a good reputation, so it was the place to go for me. Uh, went to Davis and did an equine surgery internship. Uh, uh, Shelly and I moved there in 1977. I uh, had a great uh, time there. Uh, decided that I didn't have great hand-eye coordination and, and uh, enjoyed the... Um, uh, I, I enjoyed my life in relatively short uh, uh, periods. And so the timing of around an anesthesia was better than the aftercare associated with being a surgeon. So those two things put it together for me that anesthesia was something that I might like. And then and on the other side of it is it gave me something to talk to my father about. So uh, I ended up going back to Ohio State and working with uh, uh, Dr. Bill Muir, who's a name a lot of people would know, uh, did a lot of early work in uh, cardiovascular physiology and anesthesia uh, dogs and cats and horses and a lot of pharmacology things. And so I was, he was my mentor uh, for my time in my residency, along with Roman Scarta, who's the, the godfather of local anesthesia in the horse, at least as I would see it. So I had great training there. Um, was fortunate uh, to have enough cases to anesthetize to get reasonably good at it. Was fortunate enough to have enough funding to uh, explore some things that uh, uh, taught me a lot about anesthesia and uh, made me a better anesthesiologist. So one of the big things was a Grayson grant that we got to look at ways to anesthetize uh, uh, horses that were had just finished exercising and might have had to been anesthetized for some reason. So we did a series of uh, experiments uh, on horses. We ran them on a treadmill. We uh, had them come off the treadmill, we sedated them and measured their cardiopulmonary function to get an idea what the effects of the sedatives would be in a horse that was, uh, you know, had a hot, was warm from exercising, had a high cardiac output and all those sorts of things because people at that time really didn't know how to, how to handle any of that. So we had a nice uh, series of ex, uh, trials and uh, papers written about that. Uh, which uh, we presented at AEP and other places so people knew we had an understanding of uh, dealing with horses uh, in basically all kinds of situations. And so that gets you to thinking about a lot of things with regard to the uh, uh, pharmacology and uh, yeah, physiology and I think that's a great associated lead into kind of where we're going with this paper, this paper and the idea and the, the thoughts behind it. Um, you know, you've you've probably seen a good bit of evolution in anesthesia from, you know, kind of it's, I don't want to say it's inception, but it's, it's earlier days and to what we're doing now. 
Um, what were, you know, historically before you got into it and as you got into it, kind of the big problems that that surgeons and equine anesthesiologists and, and everybody that had to deal with, you know, tough problems in the dark a little bit, what were the original things that you were looking at trying to manage and monitor um, and how did you overcome it? And, and by overcoming that, I think I'm going to end up asking a long question and let you kind of go with it. After overcoming the big things, what new problems developed as you got better and what did you then have to overcome? Well, I guess I'd say that uh, kind of history, I, I got into anesthesia in 1978 and just for a frame of reference, xylazine really didn't become a drug that anybody knew anything about till 1969. And then really in 1973, it became something that was more used. And that's, that was the first alpha two that we had, uh, for use in the horse or dogs and cats, as far as that goes. So before that, you were using uh, uh, opioids, which horses don't like opioids very much for the most part, and phenothiazines like acepromazine, which we still use uh, uh, to tranquilize horses, but uh, it doesn't produce the level of sedation that helps us all that much in anesthesia, at least in my opinion. So, uh, and then the next really, important thing that happened in my view is that uh, a paper was published in 1977 and I'm not on the paper, but it was uh, done by Dr. Muir at Ohio State that looked at the use of xylazine and ketamine for short-term anesthesia in the horse. And what xylazine and ketamine does is gives you, oh, 15, 20 minutes of anesthesia from a single injection or from a sequential injection of xylazine and ketamine, gives you about 20 minutes of anesthesia, which is enough time to castrate a horse if that's what you had to do. Uh, and, and it was a very safe technique, and the horses recovered very nicely from anesthesia. They stood, they stood square, usually within 20 minutes after the end of anesthesia. So you could anesthetize a horse and have it stand within 30 to 40 minutes after a, a short surgical procedure and do that very safely. Now, prior to that time, we were using uh, a variety of drugs. Uh, Guafenicin was one, it's a muscle relaxant. It's still used, it's a safe drug, but it, you know, it takes a while to administer it and it's not a great analgesic. And so, at, again, prior to xylazine ketamine, we used uh, guafenicin and thiobarbiturates, uh, uh, for induction. Well, thiobarbiturates are what was used in human medicine for a long time until the advent of propofol, which is probably wi- more widely used in people at this point. But they uh, cause more cardiovascular depression or cardiorespiratory depression than the ketamine did. And so until we had ketamine, um, anesthesia was more depressant of the cardio of, on, on body functions for the horse. Uh, cardiac outputs were less, respiratory depression was greater. And so the onset of being able to use ketamine was very helpful and it's still the most widely used induction agent in the horse today. So the development of those things made a difference. Uh, the creation of uh, ventilators for horses made a difference. That really happened in the 70s and 80s. A lot of times people were making up Rube Goldberg things themselves. Uh, and the commercial ones really became, the first commercial ventilator I saw was in 
I think 76 or 77. And then other companies started making ventilators for horses, which allowed you to extend the period of anesthesia. Um, so that was the 80s. And then uh, other drugs that became important were detomidine. It's in the 80s and 90s. It became available and is probably the most widely used sedative analgesic now in, in most practice situations. The, the difficulty early on uh, was uh, our ability to monitor anesthesia in the horse. Uh, when I started, uh, when you anesthetized the horse, you uh, looked at its respiratory rate, uh, you felt its pulse to see what its heart rate was, uh, you tried to gauge how uh, much cardiovascular depression you had by feeling the pulse, uh, and if it was strong, you felt good about it, and if it was weak, you didn't feel so good, and you tried to do things to support it. But then uh, a lady named Jackie Grandy, who was at Colorado State at the time, published a paper that showed the importance of monitoring arterial blood pressure in preventing anesthetic complications in the horse. Uh, they had some horses and they kept them hypotensive for a while. And they showed that if a horse had a period of hypotension, it was more likely to have problems in recovery. Uh, typically, uh, uh, disease similar to rhabdomyolysis or tying up that people might uh, recognize more than post-operative complications in horses. And so that made anesthesia, particularly recovery from anesthesia, a lot more difficult. So uh, I think doc Dr. Grandy's paper is one of those milestone papers uh, in equine anesthesia that told us that if we wanted to be really safe, we needed to monitor arterial blood pressure. Uh, just uh, thinking back, uh, I, I, I go back to a movie. I, I'm sure you remember the uh, movie, The Graduate, where Dustin Hoffman is uh, walking around the swimming pool talking about his graduation from college. And a fellow walks up to him and says, I have one word for you. And that word is plastics. And that's 1968 or 69. And so, you know, you, you think about the onset of everything we use now is plastic. But, uh, and we had plastic syringes when I was in vet school, but we weren't far away from having used glass syringes at the same time. And reusable needles were something that were, we used. Well, now that's all disposable. And we can argue, you know, around the eco-friendly aspects of that, but it, it certainly helps sterility. And, it, and it, the reason I'm speaking of it is that it took us to a place where, we actually had usable catheters that we could place in arteries repeatedly. Uh, the other thing that we had were transducers or way to, ways to interpret the arterial blood pressures that were autoclavable so you could sterilize them and reuse them or uh, they became of a price that you could afford to have a transducer and actually monitor arterial blood pressure because probably for the first five years that we did uh, arterial blood pressure monitoring, it was really expensive to do it. It's still expensive, but not near where it was. At this point in time, basically, if you can if you have the means to anesthetize a horse, you have the means to monitor arterial blood pressure, at least in my opinion. So monitoring arterial blood pressure was a big thing. Having ventilators that were useful was a big thing, or continues to be a big thing in terms of our uh, safe management of anesthesia of the horse. So those things are, uh, it seems like a long time ago, but those are the 80s and the 90s. 
uh, and those developments have occurred. And so we've made considerable progress since then, but we still have a way to go, at least as I would see it. Yeah, and it's, I think that's a really good way to, to navigate kind of into this paper in that, you know, in the paper you talk about in the beginning, um, and most of us usually reflect on the equine mortality, anesthetic mortality rate being around 1%, which you might say, 1%, that's pretty low. But if you look in, you know, what it is in humans or some of our, our small animal um, equivalents, you know, they're looking at, you know, it's 10 to 50 to 100 times higher than it is in those um, species reflect um, in comparison. So with all of these advancements that you talk about and the development of it and doing more and more and more, you now are developing a lot of cases that you can actually look at and see how and why and what are the risk factors. And I'm glad that you mentioned this is where we were in the 80s and the 90s because you talk about uh, in the introduction getting into the you know the mid-90s, 91 to 97, this monster um, and really important uh, work that was done called the Confidential Inquiry into Perioptive Equine Fatality, CPEF, CPEF 1 and 2. Would you mind just telling the audience what is that and, um, uh, and, and why it was important? Uh, sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, this is work that was done by primarily by Dr. Uh, Mark Johnston in, in, in Britain. Uh, and it's a, it was a huge study. Uh, he worked with Polly Taylor and Gene Steffi from Ohio State, helped him with it, as, or excuse me, from uh, UC Davis, helped him with it as well. So it uh, surveyed, uh, actually it was a really in-depth survey with a, a large number of university practices and private practices. And they collected data on horses that they had anesthetized and they kept collecting the data for seven days after they had anesthetized them. Uh, and the hope within that was to determine if um, anesthesia stretched the horse in such a way that it had diarrhea or it had pneumonia or something as a post-operative complication outside of the immediate period that people think about. So they gathered a huge amount of data and, and reported it. And and talked about the risk factors associated with anesthesia in the horse. And at that time, about a third of the uh, deaths that occurred in their 1% uh, occurred during the anesthetic itself. Uh, a third occurred during recovery, uh, which is still the most critical part of, of anesthesia in the horse, at least in my opinion. And then a, a third of the things were weird off the cuff things, perhaps they broke with diarrhea, perhaps they got pneumonia, things along that line, which are not always thought of as being directly related to anesthesia, but in, end up being, uh, end up being uh, 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 calamities uh, all the same. So that, that paper really uh, identified some things uh, uh, and, and recognized that the 1% that everybody talks about is in normal horses. And so if you throw colicky horses into that, the percentage went up, oh, basically doubled, went up to I think 1.7 or almost 2%. So, and, and colic horses have their own uh, issues to deal with with regard to, uh, a lot of them have lost uh, fluid or 
have sequestered fluid, so their circulating volumes aren't as great. A lot of times they've been sick for a while or they're uh, incapacitated for a while, so they, they get weak and they don't recover as well. So again, what we're talking about with the 1% is normal horses. Now, the other interesting thing is that was sort of redone by Dr. Dugdale from uh, Europe as well in 2016. And, and she related that uh, her at, at her facility uh, and at, at a university, their uh, percent stayed around 1%. But they had no intraoperative deaths. And, um, and that, uh, the, so the prob primary problems came in recovery. And you might say, well, geez, we haven't improved. But the other thing to think about within the discussion is that we're trying to do so much more than we did uh, in the 90s. Uh, we, we have better plates and screws, so we end up putting, uh, um, end, end up fixing fractures that we wouldn't have fixed in the 90s. We, we do uh, all sorts of... Uh, gastrointestinal manipulations when we do colic surgery that we really didn't do in the 80s and 90s. And so one of the issues that uh, I think makes the uh, lack of change appear worse than it is, is that we're asking more of the horses and we're asking more of the anesthesiologists, we're asking more of the teams. And, and so has anesthesia improved since then? Absolutely. Uh, are we asking more of anesthesia than we did? I think that's the case as well, although that's one of those things that you can't really prove. So I think what uh, launched us into thinking about this paper is that, uh, is it really 1%? And, and let me back up a minute and say that I've never been at a place that it's had a 1% mortality rate. Uh, we didn't uh, measure it directly all the time at Ohio State, but we were pretty sure we were within the one in 1,500 or at least one in a 1,000 ratio, which is where cats are, if you want sort of a relative figure. Uh, dogs are, the mortality rate in dogs is about half of what it is in cats. And and uh, the the only paper that was done at, in, in private practice, uh, in a single practice, was done at Rudin Riddle before I came down here. It was written by Dr. Uh, Lori Bidwell, who uh, is a board-certified anesthesiologist, and they had a mortality rate of 1% in their population. Um, and they attributed some of that to uh, training, to fast surgical times. And, and the other thing that I think is really important and something to think about is that they also attributed it to rapid referral. And that's in part a function of Rudin-Riddle being in Lexington. And there's something like 60,000 horses or some incredible number within 50 miles of Lexington, Kentucky. And so it's a different situation than it would be someone bringing a colic to a university hospital where they had to drive six hours. So the faster the horses get to the referral facility and if they need surgery, particularly in the instance of colic, the better it is for the horse, the faster we can get or at least stabilize the fracture, depending on what we need to do to it, the better it is for the horse. So there are a whole series of factors, and that's really one of the things that we tried to sort out or, or at least talk about uh, in the paper. Uh, uh, it's just not the, the anesthesiology, anesthesiologists can't solve all this problem. 
it needs a team approach with the surgeons, the other people working, all those sorts of things to figure out how to do it better. And and so that, again, we, we put this together as a think piece for people to think about, okay, what can we do to make the surgery shorter for one thing? What can we do to make the uh, uh, recovery period better? What can we do? Are there things we can do? Ask, ask ourselves those questions. Or perhaps even recognize, if, even if we just recognize that uh, if we do this surgery, it might have a, a higher risk than another surgery. And so can we offset or lower that risk by something else we might modify? So there's not specific proposals within that in the paper, but it's more of a call to folks to question, okay, what can we do that might be better? You talk about in the beginning, and if you guys look at table one, um, you know, when you're originally looking at what cases are at risk, et cetera, we historically kind of look at the ASA guide. Yeah. Um, and what you're, what you're getting at here and what chariot suggests is there's a lot of things that go into the success of an equine patient that are not going to be caught in a typical ASA uh, grading scheme. So will you describe just a little bit, um, and this is, you know, kind of the, the lead into to what you did for the paper and what you looked yeah. at, et cetera. Um, you know, in table one, you have your ASA grades and you give an example for a human and what it would be on an equine equivalent condition. So just describe the ASA grade just a little bit and sure. why you think it's not the best for really trying to get over the hump of the next generation of complication rates being decreased. Uh, sure. I, I, the ASA was originally put together in 1941. And it had, I think at that time, four different grades. And what it tries to do is look at a patient or human presented for anesthesia and decide the degree of metabolic uh, illness they have in addition to the surgery. So, or as a prelude to the surgery, it might be better said. So, uh, they're, and they're currently, they go from one to five. And one is a normal, healthy patient. So, that's uh, a healthy person that doesn't smoke and has, you know, drinks a beer every once in a while, but not a lot of alcohol use. Well, we that doesn't really apply to a horse. Uh, I mean, healthy does, but hopefully we don't have smoking horses. And I don't think there, I've seen horses drink beer, but I don't think there's uh, very much of that. And so uh, ASA has been used, it's been a, applied to veterinary medicine, but it, it it's not really very practical. Uh, ASA 2s are, they have mild systemic disease, which is somebody that has no functional limitations, uh, might be a smoker though, might drink a beer every once in a while, and they would put obesity in there, well-controlled diabetes, those are ASA 2s. Well, again, those aren't things that horses relate to particularly. So we, we um, uh, put together some things that might be an ASA 2 or a mildly uh, uh, mildly systemic patient, things like a right-sided heart murmur, maybe suggestive of uh, tricuspid valve dysfunction, maybe they have a fever, maybe they're a roar, they have uh, laryngeal dysfunction, 
maybe a little bit of increased in lung sounds if you listen to them. If it's a colic and has a mild impaction that you need anesthetized, or it's, it has some diarrhea, but it's not dehydrated, those things might be associated with an ASA2 classification as we think about horses. Realize that in all the studies we talked about, CPEF and then Dr. Dugdale studies, ASA1 and ASA2s uh, are the horses that they're talking about at the 1% level. And they and they found that in if you had an ASA3 or an ASA4, a more sick horse uh, might be a horse that has atrial fibrillation. Uh, we can safely anesthetize them, but they're at a greater risk. Maybe a horse that has crackles and wheezes when you listen to its lungs, so it has perhaps some index of uh, respiratory disease. Ruptured bladder full, I think it could be a three or a four, a four being a patient with fairly severe systemic disease, depending on how well you could uh, stabilize them before you anesthetize them. A uh, horse with HYPPP, HYPP would be either a three or a four in my estimation, depending on how well controlled they are. So what we try to do is give people things to think about with, okay, how sick is this horse really? Uh, and give some more concrete examples of things to think about and levels of sickness that might be associated with uh, uh, the ASA classifications. I think it's useful. I, I think every veterinary student currently is taught about the ASA system and what it means. And I think it has some applicability in dogs and cats and small animals uh, because we see more, we anesthetize more sick dogs and cats than we do sick horses. As, as I would see it on a percentage basis. So, uh, but still, even in dogs and cats, there was a recent paper that suggests that the ESA classification really isn't all that useful. And it's, it ends up being pretty arbitrary. And frankly, the, the uh, humanoid physicians, when they decide to look at uh, whether the ASA classification system is uniformly applied, uh, they, they come up wanting a little bit in terms of uh, whether or not one, one uh, physician anesthesiologist would score something a two and somebody else might score it a three or a four. So it's imperfect. Uh, we didn't make it perfect, but we at least give people uh, some idea of how they might classify the severity of the disease by giving them some suggestion. And one of the, again, it's an opinion paper. So in some ways, we're hopeful people would argue with us and tell us where we were wrong and make the whole thing a little bit better somewhere down the road. So we're looking at, you know, this, you know, when you look at chair at, you had two parts. First part was what you just described is trying yep. to, to tailor some of the ASA stuff to equine specific conditions, which makes a ton of sense. The second part of the paper was trying to weight or score um, characteristics of individual horses that may affect recovery yeah. and anesthesia. So if you don't mind, will you just kind of go into how this came about and how you designed uh, the survey and what sort of participation you got and how you kind of got to figuring this next uh, less tangible part out? Sure. Actually, it was quite a bit of fun, and, and it was um, um, something that in, to a degree came out of COVID, frankly. Uh, I was uh, uh, 
you know, we were all housebound for a period of time. We, we never closed our hospital, but you didn't have much to do in the evening in the, in, in COVID in February, a couple of years ago. So I started a, a, a small uh, uh, email group and, and just basically said what, uh, what we've said so far, you know, the, the uh, folks are wondering whether or not why why it's still one percent mortality rate. Uh, folks are wondering have we really progressed? And and again, I, I don't I uh, I've never worked at a place that had a one percent mortality rate. It's always been lower. But you kind of would hope that we'd want to make it better because there's some suggestion that horses are horses, and and putting a little bit of a circle around it at this point, the the, the difference between horses and dogs and cats is that horses need to stand up within 90 to 120 minutes after the anesthesia is over with. If they're not on their feet by that time, it's very difficult to support them and get them to a good outcome. Dogs and cats, if they lay there for a day uh, and rest, uh, and you get them to eat a little bit, they come around pretty well. But a horse can't tolerate that, or at least very few horses can tolerate that. And so part of the issues with dealing with horses and the, re and the reason why the uh, complication rate is what it is, is that they're going to stand. One way or another, they're going to stand. And you have to work at it to give them the best chance to stand in order to have a successful outcome. And so a lot of the things, uh, so I, I got this group of uh, six or eight people that I knew and, and said, okay, uh, how, what, what horses are at greater risk? What horses are at lesser risk? And we threw emails back and forth for about three or four months and came up with a lot of ideas. But then uh, everybody's practices got a little bit busier in the spring and the summer. And so we let it lay for a while. And then I got back to it and thought about it a little more and, and uh, realized that in, in some ways the group, these were academic folks like myself, and uh, we, we wanted to focus on the, the diseases rather than the horses themselves, as I would see it. And so that, that's where the two parts came from. Uh, the diseases of an individual animal are sort of in part one, the ASA classification, uh, because, again, going back, the 1% figures are in ASA 1 and ASA 2 horses, which aren't very sick, but they still have a significant complication rate. And so I, we went through the, the things that the group had uh, talked about and threw some numbers at it. I... Uh, came in with uh, Klaus Hobster, who's at Penn, and Bill Muir, who's uh, at Lincoln Memorial now. And we, uh, the three of us, kind of tossed some ideas around and then came up with these 10 categories that uh, the others had mentioned in the discussions. And we said, okay, well, so what do we do with this? So we put together this two-part, which talks about things like age and weight and tractability or how easy the horse is to handle, how much you can help it actually, how mobile it is, whether it's lame, whether it's ataxic, uh, those sorts of things factor into how well the horse is going to get up. 
whether it's painful, whether you can control the pain, what you're doing to it. Uh, if you're doing a fracture, is that more uh, riskier than a simple arthroscopy? Is an airway surgery more, more uh, at risk than an arthroscopy? Those sorts of things. How are you going to recover them, whether you assist them in recovery, whether you leave them alone? The duration of anesthesia, uh, what are the time limits there? Or not necessarily limits, but what times make them at greater risk? And then dorsal versus lateral recumbency, and then the abdominal profile, which is a whether or not they have belly sway, basically. And that relates to compression of their lungs during anesthesia, potentially, and, and lower O2s. And so we, we got together and we, and we made some categories uh, in terms of for each of those 10 things that we talked about. And I sent it out to uh, a number of uh, equine anesthesiologists, people that have been anesthetizing horses for 10 years or so, uh, uh, and who had published in the field. So folks that had enough experience with horses to, to give us an opinion. And I, I had 27 distributed surveys and I got 26 responses, which to me was amazing, one, and two outstanding because I, and, and we felt like we struck a nerve with some folks. And we got uh, good, thoughtful responses and, uh, 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 again, it's probably a COVID phenomenon, and they had time to do it because they, you know, were were at least uh, housebound or homebound for a period of time. So um, we analyzed the data and we uh, modified our categories based on their responses, and we put together this system of scoring uh, the horses prior to anesthesia. Um, based on the horse, based on the facilities that we had, based on what we were going to do, and uh, uh, we set, we, we figured no horses that are at no risk, and so we have a baseline column, and just uh, for a few things, the age for baseline is, uh, that came out of the survey was uh, 1 to 15 years, and so what they thought was that horses, yearlings and horses up to 15 years of age uh, were if you were going to pick the age part of it, they would uh, be at less risk than other horses. Typically, yearlings are broke or they're used to being handled to some degree. And horses at 15 years of age have some uh, athleticism to them. So uh, they're strong enough to get up in recovery. And typically, uh, at least in this day and age, a 15-year-old horse is still being ridden and has some level of activity. Um, the, survey, the respondents to the survey indicated that of uh, horses less than three months of age or pretty young foals. Uh, they thought they had twice the risk of a, of a horse uh, in the baseline group. They didn't really think that once a horse was three months of age, it had greater uh, risk than a uh, horse uh, of the baseline group. And then they, once a horse was over 15 years, the group of anesthesiologists rated it at twice the risk uh, for uh, um, potential problems. And so uh, the baseline horse would have a uh, uh, risk of uh, 10. And just if on the age category, if, if it was a two rather than one, that horse, if it was just an old horse, it might just have a score of 11. Uh, the other categories, uh, just uh, to pick one or two, weight, 
the we we had looked at horses less than 50 kilograms as basically foals that uh, they weren't necess uh the group didn't feel that they were at greater risk than our uh, baseline group, which is uh, horses of 100 to 700 kilograms. And then if they were over 700 kilograms, they thought they had twice the risk. And in, in my experience, that's probably largely related to our ability to assist really large horses in recovery compared to our ability to uh, assist a 450 or 100, 1,000 pound horse. So they thought with the increased risk at that level, uh, it increased weight at that level, rather there was increased risk. Uh, one of the other interesting categories to me was mobility, normal mobility, a horse that's sound, that horse that walks around, uh, knows where its feet are, uh, was our baseline, uh, got a score one. Uh, the group said that if it's lame on one or more legs, that I had have a score of two that would increase the risk or double it. A uh, mildly ataxic horse would have a score of two. Uh, again, thinking about recovery more than any other time, severe ataxic horse would have a score of three, and a recumbent horse would have a score of three in terms of its anesthetic risk. And I think most people would relate to the difficulties in uh, a horse that's ataxic that has lays down has a hard time getting up whether or not it's been anesthetized. And so those are the things that um, are, are just some highlights of the things that are not uh, related, uh, can be related, might be related to the horse's injury, might not be related to the horse's injury, but would uh, change or affect their anesthetic risk. And again, a lot of it focuses on uh, when they go to get up and what might impede recovery or our ability to help them during the recovery period. For anybody looking at the paper along as we talk or going back and referencing it, you'll see a table two and a table three, and you may quickly look at the two and say, well, what's the difference between these two? And and really table two is just specifically the results of the surveys, is what people thought um, should be kind of in the columns and how they should be scored. And then based on those results is how you came up with table three, which is giving a specific objective score. And it was great how you did that because you basically didn't say, this is what I think. You you asked a lot of people who do this a lot and you said, you know, let's just kind of take these opinions. And, and if you look at table two, you might say, okay, I see, you know, numbers with a, a letter next to it. That's, you know, and then the legend represents what that means in comparison to one column versus the next. But it's, it's you know, a, a way of being fairly um, open and expressive of what the results were. You guys could see them, you can compare them, and how did you come up with? Because it is an opinion paper, um, you could tell you put a lot of thought into making it just not one person's opinion, you know, which kind of gets us yeah. to a really helpful and nice scoring system, um, a proposed scoring system nonetheless, that is table three, that takes a tremendous amount of work and thoughtfulness uh, and opinions, and it, it does a good job of summarizing it into a usable form, which I know was probably the ultimate goal, which you were hoping to achieve, and it looks like you did. So I would say with that usable form, if this, this final output of data, it seems like you're at a really good place to uh, enter into what now? What do, we, what do we do with the chariot score system? There's going to be people listening to this that I'm sure 
either directly do anesthesia or directly do surgery or work in a hospital that might be thinking, this seems awesome. How do I use it? What would you want them to know and where do you want this to go? Well, I, I think the, the overall goal is to uh, make anesthesia better for the horse. And it's an opinion paper, and, and our goal was to stimulate thought. And, and uh, it's not a definitive paper. It, I'd, I'd like for somebody to prove us wrong, you know, to say that we've got the wrong scores, uh, to say that uh, if you do this, this doesn't happen. But in terms of the, the work itself, I, I think that it, it, the goal was to have people think about, okay, if I've got a, and let's, let's do the big horses. Let's, let's say I have an 800 kilogram horse. So that already gives me a risk of two compared to everything. Else. If everything else uh, was a uh, baseline, the horse weighs 700 kilograms. Now, if I'm, if that horse is also a taxic, it goes from a, uh, gets uh, two more points added. If the horse is going to be anesthetized for greater than three hours, it gets uh, two more points added. If we're doing uh, abdominal exploratory or an ophthalmic surgery, it gets another point added. And so you then get to a point where you, I mean, the highest score you could have, I guess, would be, it wouldn't be quite be 30, but it'd be in the range of 25. But if you get to 20, that means you've got a score of two or increased risk if they were evenly distributed across all these categories. And so then you, the, the point would be, okay, ask yourself, uh, can I get this done faster? Is this a horse I need to assist in recovery? Is that going to help me reduce my risk? I mean, you can't ask the horse to diet. you got to anesthetize it, so you're not really going to change its weight in any way. Uh, can we control its pain? That's going to make it uh, a better horse to anesthetize. Uh, uh, it's a little controversial, but I think lateral recumbency is better than dorsal for horses. Can I do the procedure on lateral rather than dorsal? Um, and just those sorts of things. So it, the, the idea behind the paper was to think about people, uh, uh, ask them to think about how they might do things. And that's just not an anesthesiologist question. That's a surgeon question. You know, is there a way to do this faster? Is there a way to do this in lateral rather than dorsal? Again, given that's controversial, uh, is it just, you know, how can we do things better? And, and so the hope is, is that people will uh, look at this on their own caseloads and do some scores and see whether it helps them think about things and then maybe keep track of it for a year and, and look at their complications and see uh, whether or not uh, uh, chariot applies to uh, the complications that they've had in their practice and how they might uh, is there, are there things that any of us can do to uh, reduce the risk in the horse? So I, it's a it's a goal to and, and be, be honest with you, I, I'm not to the point where I would say it's always going to be a one percent risk in the horse. I, I think we can do better than that. 
And so it's in part a way of encouraging people to keep trying to make it better. Have you started keeping up with chariot scores on your cases? Since We've this? done some in our, in our uh, uh, practice. Uh, we uh, haven't adopted it widely. We kind of wanted to get the paper out there and then we'll uh, include a chariot score uh, in our preoperative workups. Uh, we're, we're pretty cognizant of these things as we go, but we, we wanted to uh, get it out there before we really got after it collecting data. And again, it's, uh, I, I think the other piece of it is, is that uh, it's in, we put it in equine veterinary education because we think it might be a good educational tool uh, for training residents and just giving people that are going to go into equine practice things to think about as they go ahead and anesthetize horses. You have yourself listed as, um, or at least you list your corresponding author email um, yeah. questions. Um, I'm sure there may be some people listening or that read this that have follow-up questions on how they'd like to use it or just to get your thoughts on should they sure. start keeping up with scores? And if so, what other things should they be keeping up with to make that score a usable entity for comparison, et cetera. And, and um, I encourage folks that if you have those questions to reach out to Dr. Hubble. Um, as soon as I say that, he's going to have 10,000 emails in his inbox and <laughs> I'm going to shut him down for a week. Um, but you're right. It's about making it better. And I think this is a step towards it. Um, before we go, I want to know if, if there are any other uh, parting shots that you had or anything else you'd like to say about it. Uh, before we kind of conclude. Well, I, I guess the, the other thing I'd say, and we say it in the paper, but I'd say it again, is that um, we talked a little bit about earlier in our conversation about the importance of arterial blood pressure and the importance of monitoring. And uh, I, I think that uh, how we get better uh, is in part uh, recognizing the risks. And this is a recognizing the risk paper. Uh, and, and how we make it better is uh, following uh, good anesthetic practices. And, and most of the people that I know do that. But if they're having problems or they have horses that have greater risk and, and they're not satisfied with their outcome, then the next step is, is to say, how do I improve my anesthesia in and of itself? Because that really isn't addressed by the paper. The paper is saying, these are the things at the risk. These are the things that we think put you at greater risk. And then the next step for everybody is, okay, what reduces that risk? Or what can we do about some of these things? Or what can we do about our how we handle the horse anesthetically, whether that be our level of monitoring, whether that be the drugs that we use, whether that be all those things. Um, but that's the other, that's the additional area that can take us beyond where we are currently. Uh, and I think that would be the, the message that I would leave that it's not, this is an identification paper, but there's a whole generation of anesthesiologists that can take it beyond where it is now. And it's sort of a challenge to them to do that. 
I know I just asked you for one final takeaway, but now I have another question that came to my mind after the final takeaway, and I'm sorry sure. for that. Is that is, um, in a lot of the earlier studies, and all, when you're kind of coming up with different factors that go into uh, risk and complications, one of them that seems to be a pretty common factor is anesthesia after hours. Uh, but that is not a factor that was put into the the chariot uh, grouping or categories. Uh, could you comment on that at all? Yeah, I, I think that uh, it, the anesthesia after hours question is a in part a staffing question, so it's in part a people question. Uh, you, you know, you're a, you're you're in large part a criticalist at this point, and. Most criticalists uh, can work at, at any hour of the day. And, and so for you, it's a, a question of, uh, I'm not speaking to you, I'm talking about criticalists, is that you, you, you have to have a structure that allows you to be your best when you're doing surgery. And, and so that's a, that's a professional problem for us as people that are caring for horses. Um, and 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 then trying to figure out a way to provide that and and do it in a way that's economically feasible for the profession is one of the great challenges uh, that we have as uh, as an equine a group of equine interested people. So I, I think that's a portion of it. I, I, there are things. I, would I wait on a colic until eight o'clock in the morning because it came in at four o'clock in the morning? I don't think that's good for the horse. Um, so I, yeah, I, I agree that there's uh, there's uh, questions that like that. I think there's good there's good questions that like that associated with the stress level of the horse. And I take it for uh, take a fracture as an example. If a fracture can be stabilized uh, and allow the horse to settle down and remember that it's a horse before you anesthetize it. That's a, a tremendous benefit. So I think staging of surgery is very important. And, uh, and you know, if you have a fracture, a lot of people want you to fix it as fast as you can. But I, I take it myself. I had a I had a fractured tibia four years ago, and they put me in a splint and brought me back two weeks later and put the plates in. Now we can't do that in a horse, but if we can stabilize a fracture and allow the horse to eat a meal and how the horse realize it's a horse, realize that it can walk on three legs if it needs to. All those things help us throughout the anesthetic period, make, reduce the stress level of the horse. And so I, I, do, I do think that we're still going to be cutting colics at one o'clock in the morning uh, because I don't see any way that we're going to put uh, – cases that have uh, impaired blood flow and impaired oxygen to tissues, I don't see how putting that off does as much good. But if the horse, if it can be stabilized, if it can be, uh, if it's a fracture, if it can be stabilized and, and the horse uh, realizing that life isn't over, uh, before you anesthetize it, remove the stress, acclimate it a little bit, I think that's really important. I think we found that out with ruptured bladders in a foal. Exactly. You know, we've realized that we can drain their abdomen and get their electrolytes in order and have a better outcome. Uh, when I started, well, I guess 40 years ago now, we anesthetized them pretty early and we had a lot more difficulty. So 
I think the, the, the critical care and the preoperative preparation in those cases where we can uh, stabilize the patient before it goes to surgery and acclimate it to its surrounding and in some ways acclimate it to its injury uh, are a real benefit to us. So it's a complicated, yeah, yeah, it's a complicated problem. It is, but you know, the after hours thing, or really it shouldn't even matter the time of the day, really what the thought process in this, and that's what you say is the goal of this. And it is, is if I have an animal that might be a score two, is there something I can do that makes it a one? Do I have the time to lessen its score? And, and while after hours is in its own category, tractability is, mobility is, pain level is, uh, personnel available for recovery. There's a lot of factors that you can lessen their chariot score, whether that matters or not is to be determined, but it seems reasonable that it could be, you know, by waiting, by doing, not even waiting, but can I, can I improve their score? And sometimes you need time to improve their score. And sometimes you don't, like in the case of a colic, you don't have the time, but, but sometimes you do, you know? So I think that's a really good way that this could be, you know, people can help begin to think about this process uh, in a beneficial way. Well, I'll leave it at that. We're almost at an hour. Uh, Dr. Hubble, this is great. It's always, it's been a long time since I saw you. Um, I'm sorry that the Buckeyes didn't win it this year as a Georgia grad. I just wanted to, to, for the first time in my life, tell you that I feel sorry for you. I'm sure you'll get them next year. Uh, and this is probably the pinnacle of, of it as a Bulldog fan for me. <laughs> so I'm getting my little parting shots in, but it was great seeing you. And I really appreciate the time. Always great to visit with you. Hello to all my cohorts at Georgia and your family, of course. So take care of yourself. Will do. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to this Equine Veterinary Education Podcast. More on the subjects discussed in this podcast can be found online at wileyonlinelibrary.com forward slash journal forward slash e. 